Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. On this seventh and final Sunday of Eastertide, I want to preach on Jesus, the church, the Bible, and Christianity. Yeah, it's a lot. And not the most poetic title ever, but it is accurate. That's what I want to do. I want to show that though Jesus, the church, the Bible, and Christianity are related and interconnected in some obvious and essential ways, they are far from the same thing. And if we confuse the critical distinction between these four realities, we run into into serious theological problems that have real-life consequences. So this will be a rather theological sermon, and it will not be boring. (laughs) That's the first commandment of preaching. Thou shalt not be boring. Amen. All right, let's begin with a basic working, not a final, but a working definition for these four realities that I want to talk about this morning and show how they are connected and how they are distinct. First of all, Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ is the Word of God, the eternal Logos, assuming human flesh in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. So that's what I mean when I say Jesus. All right. Second reality is the church. The church is the gathered community of the baptized who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and seek to live in obedience to the Lord. That's my brief working definition. It's not complete. It's not full, but it's close to what we're trying to talk about. Third thing, the Bible. What is the Bible? The Bible is the sacred canonical text of the church, the scriptural witness to Jesus Christ and the prime source for the theology of the church. And by theology, we just mean how we think and what we say about God. And then finally, number four, Christianity. What is that? Christianity is the religion of beliefs and practices developed over time by the church in response to Jesus Christ. Now, if you can try to maybe hold those definitions, we'll return to them in your mind. You might notice that that, the, that only Jesus Christ appears in all four of those definitions. Ah, and that may hint to something that is significant and important that we will, we will get to a little bit later and explore further. All right, let's begin now to look deeper into what we mean when we say Jesus, when we say the church, when we say the Bible, when we say Christianity. We'll begin with Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if we're going to just go a little deeper into what we mean when we say Jesus... I'm not going to say anything other than what the church says and has said since 325, since the year 325, and then, you know, finalized in 381. But I'm talking about the Nicene Creed. Uh, This is what 
we as Christians have learned to say about Jesus Christ most definitively. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being, one essence with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen. I just say amen to that. Uh, but what about the church? So what do we say about the church? Because, okay, we know, we know who Jesus is. What about the church? The church is the gathered community of the baptized who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and seek to live in obedience to him. Amen. Now, the church is not and cannot be perfect. Not in this age. You know, maybe there is a perfection that yet awaits, but the church in this age is not and cannot be perfect because, you know why? You know why? Because it's comprised of sinners. Yeah, Betty was the first to speak up. Maybe she's the chief of sinners. I don't know. But uh, yeah, yeah. Because it's comprised of sinners. Or maybe we want to say it this way. Maybe we want to say the church is comprised of sinner saints. Because we're called saints, called to be saints. We're on our journey there. We haven't yet arrived. I mean, after all, 1 John says that uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We don't deceive anybody else, by the way. We just deceive ourselves. <laughs> if, I've never had that thought before. That's good. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and no one else. And the truth is not in us. Uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the, the church is comprised of sinner sins. And thus... It cannot be perfect. And so there will always be some measure of sin and hypocrisy to be found in the church because of the building materials, because of the living stones that we are, sinner saints. We bring our own sin, our own hypocrisy to church with us. Now, this is not to excuse sin and hypocrisy. It can reach, you know, egregious levels that they're just unacceptable and something has to be done. I get all that. But I just think we ought to approach it with realistic expectations so that when we begin to encounter and engage with the church, we're not scandalized. Oh, my goodness, there's sin in the church. Yes, there is. And there's hypocrisy, too, in the, in the sense that we fail to live up to what we profess. Um, so we, we just have realistic expectations. We understand. The problem comes when people get caught up in the romantic quest for the one true church. If I could just find the, the one true church. Um, well, and, and this happens. This happens among the Orthodox quite a bit. It happens among Catholics quite a bit. 
And it happens in various Protestant iterations. In some ways, not as often, but it does happen. Um, and when it happens, well, that's sad. Um, often those who end up claiming that their church, the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church, or whatever, is the one true church, well, they end up either insinuating or just coming right out and saying that um, people outside their church are not saved. Or at least they're not real Christians. Or if they are Christians, they're something like, you know, third class. This is ugly. Have, have you seen this before? Have you, I've seen And I've been on the receiving end of that, and it's uncomfortable. You know, when I've been told I'm not a Christian or I'm not a real Christian or... You know, at least I'm not a, I'm not an up to snuff Christian. I'm not a good enough Christian to be able to receive communion from them. Uh, these are, these are sad moments. Uh, I, I do want to stress that I have been served communion many times in many Catholic churches and monasteries, knowing full well that I wasn't Catholic. Now they're not supposed to do that. That's against the rules, but you know, the whole point is you have to know the rules well, so you know how to break them well. I won't tell you who because I don't want to get people in trouble. Um, well, the mistake they've made is they have confused the church with Jesus. Oh, don't make that mistake. This whole sermon is about not confusing things. Don't confuse. Yes, is the church related to Jesus? Well, it's the bride of Christ, but it's not Christ. So don't confuse the church with Jesus. It's not the church that saves it's Jesus that saves. Oh, did you know that? It's not the church that saves. It's Jesus that saves. It gets worse. <laughs> and Jesus saves people into all kinds of churches. Sometimes he saves them into an Orthodox church. Sometimes he saves them into a Catholic church. Sometimes he saves them into a Word of Life church. This is the way it is. Um, and yes, there are there are churches that fall outside the generous bounds of historic orthodoxy. And I understand that's problematic. I get that. But I'm talking about within the generous confines of creedal Christianity, there are all kinds of churches and none of them are Christ and none of them are perfect. But within those confines of generous creedal Christianity, they are all valid and we need to learn to speak well of one another. Well, in our gospel reading today, it ended with Jesus praying so that they may be one as we are one. So we don't need to go around saying, well, I found the one true church and it's mine and it's not yours. So I'm in and you're out. Let's not make that theological mistake. All right, what about the Bible? Let's move on to the Bible. What is the Bible? Well, the Bible is the sacred canonical text of the church, the scriptural witness to Jesus Christ, and the prime source for the theology of the church. Amen. That's great. It's all true. But where does the Bible come from? Do we just like find it in a field one day? Oh, look, I found the Bible. Where, I mean, what is, what is the origin story of the Bible? Where does the Bible come from? Well, the Bible comes from the church. So there's this connection between the Bible and the church. The Bible comes from the church. What the church does is we take the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and we append it 
to our own scriptures as this enormous prequel that gives us the entire backstory and gives us context and allows us to understand the New Testament. The the first and second testaments need to go together, both inform the other. And so that we just receive from our Jewish brothers and sisters. We say thank you very much, and we append it on to our own scriptures. And then there's the New Testament. Uh, Where does this come from? It didn't just float down out of heaven. The church over time said, you know what? You know what? These are the books we like. These are what we want to hear. This is, you know, many, many centuries. This is more than a thousand years before the printing press. And so how did you encounter the scriptures? You heard them read in church. And over time, the church said, these are, the, these are our scriptures. These, we don't want to hear those. We want to hear these. And we end up with 27 canonical books in the New Testament. The church said, we like those, those first ones, those early ones. Those, those old-fashioned ones, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're not so keen on these Johnny-come-lately Gnostic, you know, so-called gospels of Mary and Thomas and Philip and Judas and I think I've left out some. We don't like those. Those are weird. We, don't, we like, the, we like the, the original ones. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us those. And Luke has his Acts part. We like that. We like Paul's epistles. We like some of the other epistles. Uh, Revelation's a little weird, but, you know, we'll split it in. And so we have our, given to us by the church, the canonical sacred text that informs our theology. But the Bible is the word of God, but subordinate to the word of God. The Bible is the small W word of God, subordinate to the capital big W word of God, who is Jesus Christ. The point I'm making is the Bible isn't Jesus. Jesus and the Bible aren't the same thing. Jesus is the crucified and risen son of Nazareth, not a book. And the Bible, therefore, because it's not divine, it's not God, is not perfect and it doesn't need to be. This only becomes a problem if you end up in a system where you think the Bible has to be perfect. And then you're trying to make it something it cannot be. For example, I mean, we have, we have the obsolete Old Testament laws, or obsolete for us anyway, we think that way, that, you know, you can't have shrimp. Oh, yeah, I can have shrimp. Oh, yeah, I can have shrimp. And lobster and clams and all of that. And you can't, you can't, you can't, have, you can't have a garment with both linen and wool. Well, I do. You know, this is, I think this is a wool jacket, and it's got probably cotton thread in it. So there you go. Right? Well, this is, this, is, this is obsolete. Or we have the uh, New Testament cultural considerations. And so that, that we regard as not applicable. And so we're not going, oh, you women, here you are in here praying and singing and praising the Lord and you don't got a hat on. Now I can show you those verses and then there are those that, that say, okay, we've got to be just like that. And they become weird and mean and sectarian and exclusive and the one true church. No, we just, we, we go, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't, that made sense in the first century in Corinth. It doesn't make sense in the 21st century in St. Joseph, Missouri. And we get that. And so it's not, now, now some of these are minor problems. Those would be minor problems, maybe. Shrimp, wool and linen, hats. By the way, if you want to wear a hat, I'm all for it. I like it, but you don't have to. Uh, More seriously, though, the Bible is far from perfect. 
on, for example, subjects like the institution of slavery. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament just kind of take slavery as an assumption that it's just part of life. It's just the way it is. And so there are. It's spoken of in ways that try to manage it and maybe at times mitigate suffering and how we ought to think about it. But there doesn't seem to be a vision to just abolish it. I mean, there's seeds of it in Philemon and in some of Paul's writings in Galatians and other places, Romans, other places that that sort of begin that will undermine that assumption. But you can't get around the fact that the Bible does say in Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6, New Testament, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. You just, I mean, that's there. You can't, you can't get around that. Um, Well, these problems, that problem actually is easy to overcome as long as we don't confuse the Bible with Jesus. What the Bible does perfectly is point us to Jesus. That's what the Bible does perfectly, the true perfect word of God. What the, I'll say it this way, what the Bible needs to do perfectly, the Bible does perfectly. It perfectly points us to Jesus, all right? Um, And what I'm describing in this moment is a, peculiarly Protestant problem. 500 years ago, there was the Reformation. Uh, There had to be a Reformation. The uh, Renaissance European church was, if you agree, it's corrupt. I mean, you think there's corruption in the church now? Check it out, 500 years ago. It was a mess. Something had to happen. It needed to be reformed. Luther's what happened. It had to happen. But it also, unfortunately, resulted in not so much a reformation as a divorce. And divorces are unpleasant. Uh, divorces can be ugly, especially if children are involved and there's custody disputes, and there were. I'm using an analogy here. Work with me. And, and some of the family ended up with Catholic mom, and some ended up with Protestant dad. Now, in the divorce settlement that was the Reformation, citing irreconcilable differences. (laughs) Um, Catholic mom got most everything. Catholic mom got the long history in the church and the tradition and a connection directly with the creeds and all of that. And Protestant, all Protestant dad got was the Bible. Poor old Protestant dad, all I got was the Bible. But to Protestant dad's credit, he did a lot of good with the Bible. I mean, Protestant textual scholarship. I mean, it sets the bar. And because Protestant dad, all he had was the Bible, he had to make a lot out of the Bible, and he did. And did a fantastic job with it. But in the end, don't try to make the Bible more than it can be. Don't try to put too much pressure on it. Don't require it to be the same as Christianity. See, some people say, what is Christianity? This is Christianity. No. Now we're confused. So let's move on to the fourth thing, and you'll see what I mean by this. What is Christianity? Well, Christianity is the religion of beliefs and practices developed over time by the church in response to Jesus Christ. I say amen, but I know suddenly you're going to have some evangelicals come running here going, no, 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 it's not a religion, it's a relationship. No, it's a religion. Christianity is not a relationship. Christianity is, by definition of any 
person that's way thought this through. It is a religion. I don't want this tired cliche that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. To call Christianity a relationship is to confuse Christianity with Jesus Christ. Ah, don't, don't confuse Christianity with Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ with whom we have a relationship, not the religion of Christianity. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I hope you do, you can thank the church, the Bible, and the Christian religion for helping make this possible. Because it is the church, the Bible, and the Christian religion that pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ from generation to generation. Um, if we refuse to acknowledge that Christianity is a religion involving a deeply present human construct, yes, the Holy Spirit working and helping, no doubt, for sure, but still a human construct, we drift toward claiming it is absolute truth. Again, confusing Christianity with Jesus. Christianity does not claim that Christianity is absolute truth. Christianity confesses that Jesus Christ is absolute truth. Don't conflate the two. Christianity is the religion. Jesus Christ is the incarnate logos crucified and risen in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They're not the same. They're, they're, they're connected. They're related. One comes from the other. Christianity comes from Christ, but Christianity is not Christ. Don't confuse them. Now, the good thing about Christianity being a religion is that as such, it is capable of growth, development, and change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's good news because Jesus is true God from true God. Begotten, not made. Very God of very God. Jesus Christ is perfection of goodness, truth, and beauty. The church, on the other hand, is not perfect. So we don't want to say, oh, we don't want to say of Christianity. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No, we don't want to say that. We want to say it's capable of growth, development, and change over time. Um, for example, when we talk about this issue that I just kind of left hanging there, about the Bible and slavery. As the church progresses toward the truth who is Christ, we are able to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. The only ethical position regarding slavery in the light of Christ is abolition. We must, we must Christians, we must say, no, they're, they're, I see you can't change the Bible. The Bible is a closed canon. It's fixed. You can't take out Ephesians five or six, three, I think it is. We can't take out Colossians 3, 5, I think it is. We can't take out 1 Timothy 6, whatever it is, where it says, slaves, obey your masters. The Bible's forever going to say, slaves, obey your masters. Christianity can say something other. Christianity is capable of saying, well, yeah. As a product of its time, this was perhaps the best way they could understand how to move forward to try to maintain some sort of social cohesion. Cohesion. But as we progress in the light of Christ, we, we eventually go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's absurd. No, slaves do not obey your masters. Masters, free your slaves in the name of Jesus. And let's abolish the entire institution, a thing which everyone agrees with today. But if you get them all mixed up, if you tie them all together, Jesus kind of the church, this, you know, here's Jesus. 
No, then, then we get ourselves in all of these theological problems that I'm talking about. Um, another good thing about Christianity being a religion is that you need some religion. Yes, you do. Don't, don't. Come on. Quit arguing with your pastor. You need some religion. By religion, I mean that which keeps us rooted in healthy spiritual practices that are good for the soul. I mean, the scriptures come to us through the Christian religion, through the church, but I mean, it's part of the religion that helps us interpret it. The prayers that are given to us, the creeds, the practices, the gathering on Sunday, the church calendar, Merry Christmas, Happy Easter, all of that is a part of what's been created through the Christian religion. Somebody says, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Well, I've found that the religion of Christianity helps me become a more spiritual person. I, now, there's bad religion. Okay, the, the bad religion of hypocrisy and abuse and all of that. But we don't want that. But, the, but Jesus, see, Jesus didn't rail against religion per se. He railed against hypocrisy and religious authorities who were hypocritical and abusive. That's what Jesus rails against. But Jesus himself was a religious man and expected that his followers would practice religion, as, as of course they did. The impulse to say, oh no, religion, bad. Religion's bad. That, you don't get that from Jesus. Whether you know it or not, you're getting that from Voltaire, Nietzsche, and Marx. That's where, and a little bit of Freud. That's where you're getting that. <laughs> the, the impulse, oh no, no, no. Please understand, I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual. That is kowtowing to the arrogance of modernity that wants to say, oh, if you believe in anything pre-modern, you are uncouth, uncool, and probably just a little bit stupid. That's, that's the arrogance of modernity. And I, I'm, I'm not having it. <laughs> I say, modernity, shut up. You're just another tradition that wants to revile all other traditions that came before you. And as such, you're an impoverished tradition. And so I thank you, modernity, for modern dentistry. I really like that. That's cool. I love that. But don't think that you are the paragon of wisdom in all things. This is how I talk to modernity. <laughs> okay. Um, so we might notice that as we talk about these four, Jesus, the church, the Bible, Christianity, the, the second and the fourth are pretty tied together. Church and Christianity, they're, they're, they're very similar, those two. The church and Christianity are similar, but they're not exactly the same. We might describe the church as lived Christianity. Unlived Christianity is merely theoretical and who needs that? So the church is in some ways lived Christianity. All right, I want to stress, though, that nothing I've said thus far should cause anyone to think I have a low view of the church. No, I have a high ecclesiology. Uh, or, or the Bible. No, I have a high view of Scripture. Or Christianity. I think everybody knows I have a high view of Christianity. Uh, what I'm stressing is the high view of Christ, the ultimate high view of Christ. I'm stressing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We run into theological problems if we try to make the church, the Bible, and Christianity equal to Jesus. Have you seen people that have pretty much, you might see it more in Orthodox or Catholic circles, they pretty much make the church almost equal with Jesus. 
Or in Protestant circles, you'll see them sometimes trying to make the Bible equal to Jesus. These are, these are, this is a problem. Um, so let's go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. I love this passage, by the way. Whew, I love this one. Okay, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul setting forth the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Paul says, he is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in all things. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Woo, rock on. That's awesome. No, that's, that's, that's my kind of stuff right there. Uh, notice that this text from the Bible references the church, and certainly it informs the Christian religion. But the star of the show is Jesus Christ. The star is not the Bible, which is telling us this. This is the messenger. The star is not the church, which Jesus is the head of the star, is not Christian religion, which develops out of this kind of thinking. The star is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Paul says this in six ways. He has these six times he says all things. For example, he says all things were created by Christ. In the beginning was the Word, not the Bible, the Logos, Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and apart from him nothing was made that was made. Then Paul says, all things were created for Christ. Christ is the telos of all creation. Where Christ is, is where all things are headed, because they're all for Christ, we just had Ascension Day on Thursday, which reminds us that Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself, and we're moving towards Christ possessing all, because it's all for him, and then he gives it to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God might be all in all. Uh, that's good stuff. Uh, Christ is before all things. Well, he's true God from true God, begotten, not made. He isn't created. There was never a time when the Son was not. He's before all things. In Christ, all things hold together. He is the center that holds. Christ, is the, Christ has first place in all things, Paul says, including things like the church, the Bible, and Christianity. Christ reconciles all things to himself. This is the hope of universal restoration, apocatastasis. Now, what the church, the Bible, and Christianity say about Jesus Christ can only be said about Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the absurdity of trying to say what Paul says about Christ, about the church or the Bible or Christianity? We would, we would never say all things 
were created by the church. That's stupid. No, that's not true. All things were created for the Bible. What? It's nonsense. Doesn't make any sense. Christianity is before all things. No, it's not. What the church and the Bible and Christianity say about Christ can only be said about Christ. Jesus, the church, the Bible, Christianity. They are related. They are interconnected. But Jesus Christ reigns supreme. The moment we try to nudge the church, the Bible, Christianity toward equality with Jesus, we're headed down some bad theological paths that are going to get us in trouble. The church, the Bible, and Christianity are not perfect. They cannot be, but they do not need to be. They cannot be because they are not God. We must not try to deify the church, the Bible, or Christianity. The church, the Bible, and Christianity don't need to be perfect because it is Jesus Christ who reconciles all things to himself. And now we come to the table of the Lord's reconciliation. Stand up with me. Do you know the best thing about the Christian religion? Jesus. I'm just always going to be a Christian. You know why? Jesus. Jesus. So let's come to this table, the table of reconciliation, the table where Jesus, despite the fact that we're sinners, offers us forgiveness and then offers us his own flesh and blood that we might have his life, life of the age to come, eternal life, the life of God. Join with me now and first, all of you sinner saints, confessing that we are sinner saints and receiving the forgiveness of the Lord. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's actually the confession of our faith. I introduced it as the confession of our sins. I've only done this a thousand times. It's all right. Now let's confess our sins and receive the Lord's forgiveness. Sinner saints, amen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. Don't confuse the two. It's the table, not of the church, 
but of the Lord. Don't confuse the two. Don't confuse the church with the Lord. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.